Welcome to the Parker Avery Group's podcast series, Talk Retail to Me, where we offer insights and realistic advice from experts in the retail and consumer brands industries. If you're new to Parker Avery and this podcast, we are a leading retail and consumer goods consulting firm with over 600 years of collective experience, both as consultants as well as leadership positions in the industry. Our firm uniquely combines deep industry experience with consulting expertise and world-class talent to deliver meaningful results. Our approach allows us to build successful, long-term relationships with some of the most recognizable retail and consumer brands in the world. If you're interested in learning more about the Parker Avery Group, we invite you to visit parkeravery.com. This is Trisha Gustin, Senior Director of Marketing for Parker Avery. On this episode, I am joined by a guest to our podcast, Michelle Bogan. Michelle owns a company called Equity at Work, which provides consulting to companies in developing DEI strategies to align business objectives, employee experiences, and company values, and then supports company leaders in driving the appropriate changes. Also with me are Kathy Toll and Carrie Habel, both who lead Parker Avery's OCM Academy in change management projects for our clients. In this discussion, we outline the close parallels between organizational change management and DEI initiatives. Well, welcome, ladies. So nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's get started. Michelle, welcome to our podcast, Top Retail to Me. Let's start off a little bit. Tell us about your background, about your firm, and what brought you to this point you are at today. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So my name is Michelle Bogan, and I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Equity at Work, which is a DEI consulting business. And I started this business about four and a half years ago, and I focus really on helping companies and boards and occasionally investment companies who are investing in their portfolio businesses really figure out how to best operationalize all the elements of DEI. So not just the hiring component, but really a big focus on, especially if you're changing the mix of the people you bring in, how do you make sure they really have a place where they belong, they feel included, they can provide their best value, they feel valued, and all those other important things that make people want to stay and be really engaged in the business. And I came to this out of a different background, which I spent about 25 years in retail, both on the industry side and the consulting side. I started at Disney. I then went to Kurt Salmon Associates, which is now owned by Accenture, and stayed there for about 10 or 11 years, went from consultant to partner, worked on a variety of different clients, left to go work for Macy's as VP of Omnichannel out of New York City, did that for several years, then went back to Kurt Salmon. And I led the softlines practice, which was all of the clients that fell under the umbrella of apparel, accessories, footwear, and soft homes. And then uh, we were acquired by Accenture, stayed for a bit of that to help with the acquisition and get everyone settled, and then decided it was time for me to leave and do my own thing. And that's when I started Equity at Work. That's fantastic. And I know that you and Kathy and Carrie okay. have all worked together as Parker Avery and your firm. So tell us a little bit about that background and how you all came to know each other and how we got here today. Yes. Well, Kathy and I have known each other for many years. Yes. We worked Apple. together at Kurt Salmon Associates many years ago, and we've stayed in touch as our careers have sort of, you know, taken different turns over the years. We stayed in touch. And when she landed at Parker Avery, we started talking a little more regularly, which is great. And she's working with a lot of 
folks, former KSA folks who I used to work with. And then after I started my business, I was in need of some great consulting help with a couple projects. And Carrie was able to come work with me on a project. And we did some really fantastic benchmarking on benefits and policies related to mm. engaging and, you know, really being attractive, attractive to and retaining and engaging a more diverse workforce. And we did that within, actually within a private equity group, which is the, you know, typically like very traditional, you know, kind of setup of, you know, very long hours, no flexibility, typically very male dominated industry. So we were able to shine a light on some good opportunities for them, which they're now in the process of implementing. So I've had the pleasure of working with both Kathy and Carrie, which has been great. And Michelle, when, when, you said you left to go to Macy's and VP of um, Omnichannel. That was like 2009, well, Yes, that was 2010. Good memory. That was 2010 and Omnichannel wasn't a thing. Right. So yeah, so I threw, maybe it's more that I left Macy's as VP of Omnichannel because when I went in, I came in as a VP of some you know, terminology that basically was an internal consulting group. And we were figuring out how to really optimize across stores and .com, but also yeah. across both Macy's and Bloomingdale's. And historically, they had functioned, all of those entities functioned as very separate businesses. And we were doing a lot of work on inventory optimization, uh, price optimization, markdown optimization, and as we, and then allocation, a lot of allocation, we're trying to develop more sophisticated methods of allocating goods, integrating size optimization, which is a new thing at that point. And a lot of systems didn't exist back then, mm -hmm. to, certainly to the extent of sophistication they are now. So we were, in some cases, we were co-developing code with our software partners. We did a lot of that in allocation space in particular, and then a bit of that in size. But during that time, we were running sort of extensions of our group were running pilots to see if we could, you know, move inventory, take inventory that was in a slow turn store, ship it in a lot of cases to a faster turning store that maybe had a different size demographic and see if it could move faster. And those tests seemed to be, you know, really indicating we were onto something. And the first iteration of that was called OmniSync and it was a pilot run out of the Northwest. And then over time we that evolved into Omnichannel and that that's and we sort of helped develop kind of a new standard for the industry at that time, which was really exciting. No, I I mean I, as I'm thinking back on it I mean, that's 12 years ago, and we're yeah. still a little confused about Omnichannel, but that's mm -hmm. a different conversation. <laughs> yes. It is a different conversation, but that's that's pretty interesting that yeah. people are still pretty confused about yeah. how to really execute Omnichannel well. And but what, it does I, definitely go to the OCM topic because a lot of that was forcing some serious behavioral change and process change and technical change and reporting change and I mean you name it we we moved everyone's cheese in every possible <laughs> way and it was not easy especially for you know merchants and planners that had grown up as merchants mm -hmm. and planners over 20 25 30 years in some cases and now they had to sort of throw out their whole way of working and figure out this new yeah. dynamic and Nobody knew we, you know, then you throw out historical performance because we've never done that before. You, you don't know what the new KPIs should be. You're collaborating with people you've never worked with before. So we had to employ a lot of change management techniques within that to just even get some of these things 
a tiny bit off the ground. But as with any good retail organization, the sort of competitive instinct kicked in. And once they saw there was, you know, a new way to move some of that inventory and get better margin on it or, or get out of the inventory faster, we couldn't deploy yeah. it fast enough and figure it out fast enough. So when Michelle was at the firm as a partner, I was a senior manager and I'd started in 07 and I'd worked in consulting for many years. Michelle was incredibly helpful to me in navigating, not that it is now because I'm sure they've come light years, but consulting firms tend to be very male dominated. And there was a certain behavior out of the women of the firm that was expected. And I didn't always fit that. And Michelle yeah. was fabulous at helping me navigate those waters. <laughs> It's sort of like a secret language that we had to all figure out. <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. Michelle, so that seems like a an interesting transition in terms of your career path. How did you get mm -hmm. into the DEI space? Mm -hmm. Well, it picks up a bit on what Kathy was mentioning. So I became a partner at the firm back in, I want to say it was like probably 2008, 2007, 2008, something like that. And it was incredibly hard for me to get over the hump from senior manager to partner. And I was held back for almost two years because I had left to have my first child. But I had always been a top performer and I knew that I was just as good or better than <laughs> some of the guys that were getting promoted and it really bothered me. And the firm kept saying they were really committed to me, but I, you know, I felt like, yes, this is partly about me, but obviously there's a, there is a bigger sort of systemic problem. I didn't, wouldn't have said the word systemic at that time, but it became clear that a lot of women were having a similar problem. And it wasn't because there was any chauvinism or any sort of, you know, like block to women. There just was only one path, only one way, only one formula. And if you didn't happen to fit it within that formula, you were kind of left flailing a bit. So that led me with some other women to help start our first um, yes. networking group, which yes. was called No, wasn't yes. the greatest word, but <laughs> K-N-O-W, the Curse Salmon Network of Women. And it was really a way for all the women across different offices and practices to come together and just have a forum to have a discussion. And we didn't know where it would lead. We had no agenda. We just knew that there were so few of us and we were so scattered across different projects and offices and practice areas that we didn't have other ways to really connect with each other. So we wanted to, you know, create a way to do that. And it became clear pretty quickly that there was a definite need for, I would say three things. One was better professional development geared toward us. A second was better networking opportunities for us to network with each other, but also network outside of our siloed project experiences. And the third was to figure out this promotion conundrum, which was a longer term effort. But I have to say, as I look back, like that was the initial spark that then, you know, I then really got very passionate about that work and I carried it with me to Macy's and I carried it back with me to KSA and then carried it with me a bit to Accenture. Really, it struck a spark in me in terms of advocacy and it ended up expanding beyond women and to many others, you know, sort of underrepresented groups. But the core of that was was this work on behalf of women. And I and once I got on the North America leadership team, I really felt like I needed to use my role 
in that setting, which was me and a bunch of guys who had been in the, with the firm for 25, 30 years to shed some light on the challenge. And I was able to do that. We got great support and we were able to drive some good change, but you know, it took some time, but that's really what then, as I was deciding to leave retail consulting and thinking about what I wanted to do next, I still loved consulting, but I just, I kept, my mind kept coming back to this work and how powerful it was and how much I loved it. And I felt like there was such a need in the market for people who could take those consulting skills and channel them into this sort of muddy, sensitive, emotional, political area around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that was my sort of the impetus for that change. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I think that's like omnichannel, still a very muddy gray area, still very difficult in a professional forum or venue to be able to have a candid discussion without stepping on a landmine, unwittingly mm-hmm. stepping on a landmine, which I think is a big piece of this, is I don't know, I, I've always done this, I've always said this, and didn't realize that it was biased in some way until somebody helped me see. Right. Yes. Right. <laughs> and I think that's the dilemma that we're struggling with right now is if you have new players coming into an environment, you had mentioned that the existing team members, they need as much, if not more coaching, because mm-hmm. they're going to have to adapt and grow in their ways and yes, how they interact. Absolutely. absolutely. And I always tell people, now that I've been doing this work full-time for several years, I I really believe that it's, this work is like 25, maybe 30% education awareness, and the rest is really behavior. Yes. Because you're breaking old habits, old ways of doing things, which for most, I mean, for the vast majority of people, were never intentionally meant no. to, yeah. you know, display bias or hold anyone back or anything but they they have and we're all existing in these systems that were constructed around these old ways of working so you do have to you know address it from multiple angles to really break it up and find a new way to to do all of this yeah that's interesting the the parallels i and i never realized this before but the parallels just like what you just said kathy between moving towards an omnichannel environment and moving more towards a an environment a working environment where organizations understand the more inclusive nature that we all really need to strive for it's it's this is the way we've always done it and and not intentionally being malicious or anything it's just this is the way things Mm -hmm. roll but there's a different way and perhaps better way usually better way of doing things. So it's just opening your eyes and it all goes back to that awareness and communication and education around things. And so there's so many parallels between what your firm is, is, you know, and this whole movement is an omni-channel. It's insane that here on this little podcast, we've kind of brought all together. I'm sure you're not the first one to realize that, but I think that's, that's pretty, pretty amazing. Just the parallels there. And, and similarly, so much of this comes from, like, you really have to lean on the most senior leadership yes. to embrace it and set the tone and acknowledge and say out loud that this is going to be hard and different. And we're going to bring a spirit of forgiveness to this and assume best intentions. And everyone is sort of on their own 
you know, to some extent, everyone sort of has to pace themselves like their own way through this, but that we're all kind of on this journey together. People are terrified of saying the wrong thing. And, and I think even more than that, being sort of outed for that, you know, like it's one thing to say the wrong thing. It's another thing to have that like videoed and posted <laughs> somewhere public. Yeah. And so there is a lot of fear and I would just encourage everyone, like it, it comes down so much to your frame of mind around it, but that's where leaders really have to step out, create an environment where it is safe to say what's on your mind, even if it may be the wrong thing, knowing that that's kind of the only way that you learn is yeah. to figure out, oh, what if that maybe was, wasn't the right way to say that or the right way to think about that? How could I do that differently? It, it really takes that kind of intentional thinking to, to break this down and like start to create a big change. How yeah. is that done though? How is, how, what approaches from a OCM perspective, I guess this is to, out to all of you, what are the best approaches as companies go down that path to open those lines of communication and let people feel that they're safe to ask questions mm -hmm. that may have been tough questions to ask even five years ago? Well, and Carrie, I was just thinking of, often Carrie and I will say to each other, assume positive intent, assume best intent. Mm -hmm. And part of it is I, 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 you, you have to have a core group of people willing to do the work and willing to be uncomfortable and willing to get feedback. And for me, that usually starts with a smaller group, a pilot perhaps, probably has to have some senior leadership in there, but there has to be space given and it, Again, five years ago, you know, when, when we looked at high-performing teams five years ago, psychological safety was never a phrase used. And that is the core, that that is the number one that I feel safe with my coworkers psychologically that separates a good from a great team. And that took a gazillion years of research, who knew? Having gone through this, not in a work environment, but in a school environment, they were very deliberate to set up the path for all of us to start to feel comfortable enough to say, I don't, I don't know how to say that. Or I had no idea that I've been carrying around this bias my entire life. I've like, I had some eye-opening events where I'm like, how could you miss that boat this far into, you know, my, my journey in life. But I do think a lot of it is the preparation and the, choice of people that you begin working with. Yeah, and I know Michelle, you and I have talked and Kathy, you just had touched on this too, but the senior leadership, I, I think is really key yeah. for them to open up and be vulnerable and role model those types of behaviors. Like if they, you know, say, I don't, I don't know, I'm going to say this in this way, but it might be received you know, not, not well, but I'm going to take a chance and do it anyways. And please coach me. And I don't know, Michelle, if you have, you know, had a, any, I guess, best practices or secrets or anything to be able to <laughs> kind of create, it's like a cultural thing, but it has to start with that senior leadership. Yeah. Is there any tips that you can share with, with our listeners or with? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're both spot on. And I think what I find is actually most effective is for the folks at the most senior level who are, who you might think would be the least likely to be rah-rah about DEI, those are the ones you really need to get out front and 
show some vulnerability and a little humility and say like, listen, this is really vitally important. And then, then typically that kind of helps everybody see how deeply important it is. If the, if the folks that, you know, like the traditional, like your traditional idea of, you know, sort of old school CEO, you know, it's probably a straight white male, most likely might be in his sixties, you know, he's been in the industry for a long time, you know, known as an expert in his field. That that's the guy that you need in the room kind of not just doing it once, but doing it over and over and over. Like that communication strategy that we always, you know, build into any OCM thinking and strategy and approach, like that is a vital part of all of this because it needs that constant reinforcement at multiple levels, but you really need that senior leader role modeling it over and over. You know, it's it just sets a tone, it, it sets a expectation. It shows that it really is a great demonstration of everyone being in it together. And it's a great opportunity to, to show that it's really core to the business DNA to start doing this as opposed to an HR project or a task force initiative or something else like that. It's really part of that strategic core for the business. That's I think what sets people up for the greatest chance of success. Yeah. And then it's patience that this is going to take some time and everybody's learning together and we may hear some different voices than we used to as a result, which is a great thing, but that also means we may be learning about things that we didn't realize we were doing. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, some people can feel, you know, defensive about, some people can feel sort of dismayed about, all kinds of things. And that's really part of the process that everyone has to work through. And the parallel between the work you do, Michelle, and OCM is, I say it, all the time change is not a task force it is not Mm -hmm. one person it is (laughs) not an hr project it Mm -hmm. has to be something that's owned by the organization and that people are willing to like fall down get up keep going and that Mm -hmm. that environment encourages that because if we've learned anything over the last two years it's it's insane the the types of I think resilience people have had to build whether they wanted to or not, whether they liked change or not, we all had it shoved on us and we all had to like learn how to adapt and get through it. And yeah. and we did, which I, I think is such a testament when people are like, oh, I hate change. I'm like, well, look at what you just lived through. Mm-hmm. You actually are probably better at it than you think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's very true. Speaking of like the last couple of couple years where there has been a lot of change, what have you seen in the biggest, I guess, the changes in DEI strategies or, you know, initiatives yeah. in general? What, where are like the biggest shifts? And maybe I think, we can start with what is DE&I? <laughs> yeah, sure. That's a great question. So DE&I, they do tend to get lumped together. Sometimes yeah. people add a B for belonging. Sometimes people add a J for justice. People in general think of diversity as like, demographics are like being of a non-straight white male demographic really diversity is just a measure it's a relative measure of those demographics and it can be all kinds of different demographics against the rest of the group it's looking at you know gender race sexual orientation it can look at religion it can look at you know age it can look at are you a veteran or not are you differently abled are you i mean all kinds of different socioeconomic things education all those things can fall into diversity. 
the equity important component of that is to really ensure that people truly have equal opportunities based on where they are starting from. So it, it's looking a little more holistically at what it takes to help provide opportunities for development and for advancement mm -hmm. and for pay equality. Many people have seen this great visual of three people trying to look over a fence that sort of says the equity yeah. versus equality thing. And when they start out, there's, you know, one, there's a, what looks like a man is can see over the fence. There's a woman who can halfway see over the fence. And then there's a smaller person or sometimes there's a person in a wheelchair that can't see over the fence at all. And, and that's considered equality because they're all being treated equally to each other. If you look at the equity piece of that, their heads are all at the same level. The woman has been given a small box to stand on. The person in a wheelchair has been, has been built a ramp yep. to roll up on. And I think it's, especially with the wheelchair version, what I love of that is it shows that sometimes it takes different things to get everyone to the same level, but it is acknowledging that we're not all starting from the same place. So that's, that's the E component. And a lot of times people focus it on pay, but really to me that extends into professional development opportunities, networking opportunities, yep. promotion criteria and, and opportunities. Those all fall within equity. And then the last piece it, for I is for inclusion. And that's really making sure that everyone feels like they, when they come to work, they can have a voice. They can be sort of seen and heard for who they are. They feel like they have a sense of belonging. A lot of times engagement scores really reflect the degree of inclusion employees feel in a company. So those are the core things. Like I said, some people have tagged on B if they want to look at belonging as a little separate from inclusion. I find in general companies that have a DEIB strategy as opposed to a DEI strategy are pivoting from a very non-people focused environment oh, to try to really send a message home that they're being much more people focused. The ones who had the J tend to be, you know, very kind of politically active or yeah. very social justice oriented. So that's sort of the landscape in general. And now Carrie, I've forgotten your first part of your question. Just in the last years, you know, yeah. with oh yes. everything feels like it's changed. So what are the biggest trends or yeah. what has changed most dramatically? DEI has been around for a long time. It hasn't really been called DEI. It's taken different names over the years, like, you know, affirmative action is yep. one sort of splinter of it. Equal pay for equal work was a big focus for a long time. And then we kind of focused a bit on women for a long time. And really following the murder of George Floyd, it, there was a big interest on in race, of course. And then that spurred I think a lot more awareness around intersectionality. So I think that's one trend that's emerging, which is that we're not, no one of us is defined as any one thing. We all are multidimensional. And so you have to think of those components together when you are trying to, you know, put these initiatives in place or change yeah. operationally, like really operationalize DEI into the day-to-day -day of your workplace that you're not just a woman or you're not just white or you're not just black or you're not just, you know, certain religion, like people are a mix of lots of different things. So the intersectionality piece has, it's more complicated, but it's very important. And I think people are realizing that it is important to think of it from a lot of different lenses. I also think there's more awareness that DEI isn't just about gender and race, but it, it is about many, many other components as well. The other thing that I think is evolving for good is that there is a recognition that 
while you can go through training on these things, training doesn't sort of move the needle in the big picture sense, which is also to me foundational to OCM. Exactly. You can be trained on something. It doesn't mean you walk out the door knowing how to do this thing differently or behave differently. So there's, I'm starting to see a lot more investment time and money wise in like, let's help really get people coached on this over a long period of time. Let's bake in like a lot more real life situations Let's provide lots of different kinds of support. And that to me is what is starting to make the bigger difference on change. And then with that, there's a lot more published accountability for reaching goals that are set. And I'm starting to see that actually trickle down, not just from the most senior level, but down into other levels in the organization, which I think is also really important because it's showing everyone that, you know, we all have some role to play in, in driving this change. When you're and, talking about published, are you saying pub- public? publicly or just internally? yes public or like published in an annual report published in a an esg report talked about with analysts very publicly it's interesting i i have a couple of clients that are publicly traded companies and they are under huge pressure and scrutiny with the sec filing requirements that have evolved over time to start disclosing more and more around gender and race by level and by function and on the board versus not and like different mixes of that there's more coming there the esg space in general is getting a lot of scrutiny on the environmental piece and on the the s the social piece so putting in your esg report that you do training and you you know you have x number of women on your you know senior leadership team and you do philanthropy is not cutting it anymore people are looking for a lot more substance behind that And that's, yes, that's what I'm curious to, I think part of over the last couple of years, what we've seen is the voice of the employee saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. Yes. Even generationally, depending on the age of the person is it, it is unacceptable to them to work Mm -hmm. in an environment that they don't feel is inclusive. I'm wondering if some clients almost grudgingly were like, Okay, we have to give it more than lip service now mm-hmm. because their hand is being forced, whether it's by mm-hmm. the public, it's their employees, what have you, that they have mm-hmm. to push past the, you know, the couple of surface stats and we do training twice a year. Yay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think there are, you know, fortunately, I think there are fewer and fewer of those that are sort of begrudgingly going into this. I think most of them are kind of in this big middle spot of we've tried a few things, yeah, yeah, but things haven't changed drastically. We want to do more, but we don't really know what to do. There's not like a clear set of best practices that have come out yet because everyone's trying different things and it's so culture specific. And so like leadership style specific that I don't think there'll ever be one set of best practices. I think there are, going to be some aspirational goals to move toward, but how to get there will be very different for each company. And then there are some who've been leaders from the beginning, you know, that have tried, although they typically have picked like one or two key points to focus on, like they maybe pay equity was a really big deal. So like Salesforce is really big on pay equity, yeah. or maybe equal representation at all levels is a big deal and in terms of race. And Starbucks, for example, was really big on that. And But I think everyone's also understanding, like, I can't just pick one thing. I've got to go at this in multiple ways and and there's just a lot more interest and willingness in going on the journey this war for talent and great resignation have contributed to that a ton 
and I think coupled with that, just a lot more transparency and access to what goes on behind the scenes in a company. Like there's so much more out there on different, you know, websites where people can leave confidential reviews and just general networking and stuff like people are so much more have so much more knowledge yes, yeah. before they started a company than we than in my day certainly uh where you just sort of hoped that what you heard was correct and you yeah. know kind of hope for the best so it's you know companies are having to stay accountable and and do better if they're if they've been outed for you know having practices that don't align with the story they tell in recruiting so all those things together are really you know, making companies sort of take notice and, and prioritize this. And I think there's overall a desire to do it anyway, but it just helps bump it up the uh, yes. priority list a yeah. little more. Yeah, for sure. It, it should be a simple equation, but it's very hard to execute is what's it going to take to change the needle, like to push yeah. to improvement. And it's not, it's the sustainability. So Trisha was like, when you mentioned training, we can't have that conversation. They're like, our people need to be retrained. I'm like, they're not dogs. <laughs> okay. I know your I'm head like, was exploding there, Kathy. It's like, oh, we trained them. And I'm like, three years ago, and you've had 97% turnover. So <laughs> what's your point? But it, it's the ability to stick with it and have a coach or have forums on a regular basis that you're having to check in with or, you know, that, that is saying, okay, how'd the week go? And I'm like, well, I kind of stepped in it over here and mm-hmm. so I was able to rebound over here. Is mm-hmm. it, it just can't be one in like one and done. It, it has no. to be something that's allowed. And I know I struggle with, is it my role to explain to somebody that you just mansplained to me <laughs> for instance? <laughs> and I have had, in a diplomatic way, had to have that conversation or in a funny mm-hmm. way would say, oh, yeah, he was mansplaining to mm-hmm. which the person said, well, what is that? And I'm like, um, it's just, you know, and it's, it's an expression when sometimes a man is talking in depth to a woman who's also expert in the same area and knows it, but he's explaining it to her. And I do have to say there's some we have men within our firm that after I we had we'd had this conversation they were like he mansplained and I'm like yes he did good job <laughs> he's like well that's good they're spotting for on yes. your behalf yeah. like, what do you think they're dumb and I'm like no <laughs> no it has nothing to do with intelligence at all it's a it is old habits yeah. or it's a habit picked up from watching a generation ahead of them that that was very normalized or, you know, these things that you've just got to start to break down, that sort of shaking off old yes. ways of doing things and having more awareness about it, self-awareness about it. That's really important. It's definitely a big change management topic and one that should continue. Mm-hmm. Those conversations should definitely continue. And I think companies will continue to learn and improve in this area for sure. Michelle, if you could give one big piece of advice as companies continue to navigate their way through this journey into DEI and, and navigating social change issues, what would be your one piece of advice? I would say, can I give two? You can give two. <laughs> it's hard to give one. Yeah. I would say, I mean, there are two things that are popping in my head at the same time. So I'll just say them both. The first is 
you need to be really honest with yourself and your organization about where you really are today. Because if you don't have that, you're not starting from a solid foundation. Even if where you are today is something that you are not proud of yeah. or you don't really want other people to know, you have to just sort of say like, this is where we are today. If you were going to the doctor because you're having a heart problem, you wouldn't go in and say, I've never had any problems. You would go in and say like, I've had this weird racing heart, or I've had this or that, and it's making me nervous. Like, so then you can get an appropriate diagnosis and treatment plan and, you know, path forward. This is very similar. You've got to start from a really honest look at yeah. where you are today. Look at it from a lot of different dimensions. Get a lot of different inputs, different voices into that mix so that you can be most productive on the journey forward and set realistic goals and, you know, realistic accountabilities and all that. So that's one piece. The second is part of what scares everyone about this work is having to have the bandwidth to now listen to all kinds of different input that maybe didn't have a path in before. So if you are starting to say, we want to listen to all voices within the company, that can feel very overwhelming. But if you make that promise, you really have yeah. to stick to it and you've got to have a way to action on what's happening and have feedback loops that go back and say, this is what we heard. This is what we're doing. This is, you know, this is what we're doing now. This is what we're doing later. This is what we're not doing and why. So that you create an ongoing dialogue. Mm -hmm. I do see a lot of people sort of open it up, but then they want it all in the survey and they don't want to share the survey results. Mm -hmm. It's like saying you're inclusive, but then, but not really. <laughs> so yeah, you've got to do yeah. that sort you know, you've got to just do that hand in hand. That is great advice. Michelle, if people want to learn more about your company, how can they find you? Oh, sure. So I'm on LinkedIn. You can look up Michelle Bogan or you can look up Equity at Work. And my website is www.equity-at-work.com. Okay. Are you on any social besides LinkedIn? Are you on any other social media platforms? I am reluctantly on Twitter. Okay. <laughs> Twitter does scare me, but I... I'm also on Twitter, so you could DM me on Twitter. And I'm on Instagram, you could DM me on Instagram. But LinkedIn is definitely where I'm most active. Well, ladies, thank you. Again, thank you. I think we could continue to talk for quite a while on this because it's such a big subject and really important. But we are at the end of our time, and I appreciate you joining me today. It was a great discussion, and thank you yeah. very much. Thank you all so much. Thank this you. was really great. wonderful. Thank you. And that's a wrap. If you would like to learn more about our organizational change management and other consulting services, please visit our website at parkeravery.com. Please also share this podcast to someone who may benefit from the insights. And don't forget to follow the Parker Avery Group on LinkedIn.